Logical Progression, Year 3, Lesson 5. wanted to get through all of this uh, touching this and touching that and got no drug or custom and it drives them it drives them mad positively so I think we left it at should I just have a look at the thing okay so we are on the fourth um we are on the fourth invalidator of wudu, okay? And this is all about th th this this uh, uh, aspect. Um, is all about touching the private parts initially of one's own and then going into the issue of the hermaphrodite. And I mentioned last week the reason for that, even though yani, hermaphrodite is so, is so rare, is so, yani, you know, uh, uh, how can I say? Well, so rare. Uh, you might think that why on earth did, you know, did they spend so much such time discussing it? Only because it presents, obviously, a different situation that needs to be dealt with. Uh, it's not just hypothetical. It is actually true. Hermaphrodites exist and they have both sexual organs. So therefore, what happens? What are the issues concerning? You can either look at this very simply or, or go through it in detail uh, as the fuqaha want to. And we will do it in detail as the fuqaha want us to do it. So we came to the point that um, uh, number four A, the fourth one is touching a connected penis or labia with the back or palm of one's hand yes, and I think we, we, we finished that uh, point on the, on the issue of the back um, and I think that what Sheikh Uthameen was, was said was, was quite clear yeah, that uh, and the evidence that he mentioned, not just the ayah of of cutting the hand, okay, the the the, the basic principle is that the the hamli madhab said whether you touch the the private parts with the back or the front, it is God. Yes, and we said that look, the back of the hand is not something which is normally used for touching the private parts. In actual fact, as I as I mentioned last week, when uh, if the people follow the madhab uh, or various madhahib in this issue strictly, then the manner that they wash themselves is done in such a way so that when they wash their private parts during wudu, okay, or during ghusl, rather I should say, then they will clean themselves so that their, uh, their palms of their hands are cleaning like their thighs and so on, and the back of their hands are touching their private parts in order to clean that area. There's an understanding generally even in popular culture that a person would not want to touch something with the back of their hand. Um, and the hadith itself indicates, it seems to indicate that the hand itself and the hand is, uh, when, in terms of touching, is always referring to the palm and not the external side. The external, what's, what's this called? Just the upper part of the hand? 
What is this called? The what? The dorsal. So the palm, when the word palm is used, it's always referring to the inner. Yeah, exactly like that. So the dorsal part or the dorsal side and the upper side is not the only included in this. So that's uh, uh, that's applicable to the class, the, the Hanbali Madhab, both sides. Okay? The class position and Sheikh Uthameen's position, Sheikh Al-Mukhtar Shankriti's position, it is only the palm. Is that good? Yeah? So, does the touching, what is the actual reality then? Does the touching of the private part break the wudu or not? Does it break the wudu or not? There are four positions. Okay, let's cover this in detail. There are four positions. Did I have a piece of paper here somewhere? Oh yeah, here it is. So, and uh, uh, I have summarized it as this. The first position is yes, and that is the madhab. And when I say yes, that means therefore it is obligatory to then make wudu. One touches the private parts, then it's obligatory to make wudu. When I say yes, okay? No means there's, it's not obligatory. Yeah, it's not, it doesn't break the wudu. doesn't break the wudu. Number three, yes, it does break the wudu, but only with sexual desire, with shahwa. Okay, I won't have to, I won't keep adding the word sexual desire. That's obviously what's intended when we say desire. Okay, by desire, meaning there's some kind of form of sexual intent there. All right, or some kind of feeling is, is emitted or elicited. There's some kind of feeling, sexual feeling. So that's with shahwa. So the third opinion is that yes, it is obligatory to make wudu again if we touch the private parts with that with that desire, okay, or desire is elicited. And the fourth position is that it is only recommended, but in all circumstances. So to make wudu, it is recommended in all circumstances. So it doesn't matter whether it's with shahwa or not shahwa. You touch the private parts, you should make wudu. Should meaning it is good for you to do mustahab. It is something which is required. Let's look at these in detail. The first position, and that is a position of the Hamli Madhab. And why did they say that you have to make wudu? You must make wudu if you touch the private parts. They said, firstly, number one, the hadith of Busra bin Safwan, the hadith of Busra uh, uh, bin Safwan, that the, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Whoever touches his penis, his penis, let him make wudu. Let him make wudu. This hadith, as you can see in the footnotes, has been narrated by Imam Ahmad, by Imam Abu Dawood, and at Tirmidhi, and in Nasa'i, and Ibn Majah. And it was considered to be authentic by the following Imams Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, okay? Imam Yahya ibn Ma'in, and Imam at Tirmidhi himself, and Ibn Khuzayma, and Ibn Hibban, and Imam al Hakim, and Al Bayhaqi. In fact, Imam al-Bukhari said a very interesting statement and a very strong one, which is why the Hanbalis are very strict on this issue. And Muhammad Mukhtar al-Shankriti, by the way, from the contemporary scholars, Sheikh Muhammad Mukhtar al-Shankriti is upon this opinion. He is upon this opinion. Imam al-Bukhari said about this issue that this hadith is the most authentic hadith fil bab. fil bab. And this is very common. This is a very common statement. This is a very common uh, phrase. Phrase. Yeah, technical term, phrase, yeah, that Imam Bukhari will mention. Actually, the Fuqaha and scholars will generally mention, but Imam Bukhari is the, is the, the one who uses this statement. When, he, they, when they're trying to, you see, Imam Bukhari is from Ahlul Hadith, right? And his primary kind of source for getting a ruling 
is going to be finding the kickoff hadith in the chapter. The chapter means any uh, anything, any kind of sub-chapter of fiqh, any kind of issue. So what's Imam Bukhari looking for? He's looking for the big, you know, hadith which delivers the fatal blow, right? And so there'll be loads and he'll compare all of them. And he has said that in the issue of touching the private parts, in the entire chapter, for all the pros and the those said no and yes and yeah, no, so, this is the most authentic hadith in the chapter. And it says that you should make wudu, okay? Let him make wudu. And this is a fi'l amr, this is a command, okay? Um, interestingly, uh, Imam al-Nawawi said that this is also narrated by Imam Malik in, in the Muatta and the three, meaning the three Imams, uh, considered, uh, talking about the Imams of the Sunan, uh, they considered it with, uh, they narrated this hadith with authentic chains. And it's also been collected by a number of references that are there. This hadith, by the way, uh, even though Imam al-Bukhari mentioned it and he said it's authentic and so on and so forth, okay, the, he himself did not narrate this hadith, okay, which shows that he does not consider it to be super authentic. Now, that's not a problem. Obviously, when you study hadith, you realize that just because Imam Bukhari said it is the most authentic hadith in the chapter, that doesn't mean it's good enough for it to go into my book. Yeah, because Imam Bukhari's book is the A-star class. Imam Bukhari can't just be putting any authentic hadith into his book, otherwise people will lose confidence in the book. The reason Sahih al-Bukhari is Sahih al-Bukhari is because its hadith are beyond discussion, beyond question. Imam Bukhari himself knows that this hadith has doubt in it. There are some discussions about it. There are some questions about some of the narrators in the hadith. That's the reason why the scholars differ over the authenticity. But he's confident enough to say that despite all of that, it is actually the most authentic hadith. It's like the what? The best of the worst? How do they say that? Best of the worst, yeah? Or the best of the lot? Whatever. Um, meaning that it's not a very great bunch of hadith to start off with in terms of authenticity. But out of them, this is the most authentic. This is his point. But you should be getting the indication that there, this is not a straightforward cut and dry case. There are going to be people who are going to argue in this issue. And they're going to start the argument right at the top by saying the hadith that you use is weak. And that is an acceptable opinion. Scholars consider this hadith to be weak. Some of them. Anyway. That's the first hadith. That's the first evidence for that. The second evidence is the hadith of Abu Hurairah. Anhu. He said, The Prophet said that if one of you touches his penis with his hand and there is no barrier uh, there, then it is then wudu is obligatory upon him. Wudu is obligatory upon him. In this word, ila dhakarihi. Okay? Alright. Um, now this hadith is has been uh, uh, this hadith very clearly specifies the penis. In the next in the other narration, um, the faraj. I just wanted to let you know what the word faraj means. It appears many times in the uh, in the in the Sunnah, okay. The word faraj is a very general term. So faraj means the uh, genital region, and it also means the penis, and it also means the labia, and it also means the anus as well. So it's almost like private parts. The word faraj means private parts. So it has a general and a specific meaning, depending upon context. 
So when ila farajihi his faraj, then it's almost specifying the penis as well. But at the same time, it is also referring to his private parts. So referring to his own anus. And if it was ila farajiha, then it would be referring to her and her own private parts as well, the labia, etc. So this word faraj is a very general word. You can't say, for example, her penis. It's not possible. You cannot say zakariha, right? But you could say farajiha. So private parts. Her private parts is private parts of words, isn't it, in English? Yeah? So private parts is the exact translation for the word faraj. Remember that. And the actual fact, the majority of lay Muslims, okay, when it comes to the use of any phrase for the, for the private parts, the only word that they will know is the word faraj because the uh, Prophet ﷺ used this wording in the famous hadith that everyone knows. Whoever guarantees me this and this, okay, then I will guarantee him paradise. Meaning the private parts and the tongue. Yani don't gossip and talk nonsense and lie and whatever. And don't do zina or any of these kind of sexual acts. So the faraj is a very common used word and it's a lot more, uh, you know, usable uh, etiquette-wise. It's more safer to use than the more specific word such as the more direct kind of one of the organ. So this hadith, this hadith um, in the narration of Ibn Hibban, the, uh, the, uh, the reference has been given as page 246. So if you just put, turn back to page 246, then we can see, we can see that, where is it on page 246? Two hundred and forty-six. Two hundred and forty-six. I can't see it. No, it's not there, man. I don't know if that's a mistake there. For the for the notes for the notes, then I will I'll uh, I'll find the reference for it. I don't know why they put. Uh, I can't find the reference for it. Anyway, I can tell you this much, that this hadith has much more criticism over it in terms of weakness, okay? It is also a hadith which is considered to be weak, okay? Or have weakness in it. So just at least know that for now. Some of the scholars consider it to be weak, some consider it to be authentic, okay? The third uh, evidence for those that said that it's obligatory to make wudu after you touch the private parts is because the Prophet said is because of a principle that if a person touches his private parts, okay, uh, uh, especially a male, if he touches his private parts or the female and something is emitted, something is emitted, all right, and they don't, they don't realize. It's possible, it's possible that there is some kind of ejaculation of some sort of sexual fluids either for the male or the female and they don't notice. They don't notice, that's possible, small amount. Um, then that, uh, so therefore the same principle applies such as sleeping, that this is This is the place where one expects, or the time, or the opportunity, or the, or the moment where one expects uh, impurity to break, hadith to occur. So just like sleep, if we go back to the discussion we had on sleep, the detailed one, okay, then you will have realized that though there are some scholars, like when we talk, when we said that sleep breaks wudu, why did we say sleep breaks wudu? Did we say sleep breaks wudu? We don't know what's happening during the uh, sleep. 
meaning sleep is where we think something will happen that will break our wudu. And just because we think or it's expected that things will happen that will break our wudu, then they said that this sleep breaks our wudu. So there's no actual evidence anywhere that actually says that closing your eyes and going to sleep is what actually breaks the wudu. It's what happens or the expected outcome of what happens to your body during sleep. If we accept that principle, and so many did of course, all right, and Hanbalis will say you accept that principle, you're the ones, they might be saying this to the Shafi'is or, or the Hanafis, whoever they say, you accept the principle that it doesn't have to be something very obvious. You accept that when you go to sleep, it breaks wudu, yes or no? Yes, yes we do. Why? Because that's when we expect maybe someone to pass away, someone touch their private parts, someone to do someone do that. Okay then, if you expect that, then I'm telling you as well that likewise touching the private parts is, the, is uh, when that happens, it is a possibility, quite an expected reality, that there could be some emission or ejaculation and you don't, and you don't realize it. Therefore, the touching of the private parts is also madhunnat al-hadath. It is also the place where the possibility of hadath occurring. So that was the third evidence, yes. Um, this would lead to principle that um, Well, well, this is a this is a point here. Yeah? So Musab is saying, how do we understand this with the, with the concept of doubt? We know that doubt cannot over to overcome certainty. So what is certain must remain, and a position of doubt cannot overtake it. Yeah. So that would make common sense. And I have to say, I have to say that the mass majority of scholars did not apply this here. They did not apply this here because for them, the issue is of, of going to sleep. Because you have lost control, we're outside of the, 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 the idea of doubt or certainty. It is certain that something's going to happen. Because, and, and whatever happens or not, the one thing which is certain is that you are not the person to ask. There's no way you can defend yourself. So you almost force to take the certain the, 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 you, you're almost forced to negate the doubt uh, aspects. It's almost certain that it's certain. I don't think it's it, almost. It's certain that that you cannot defend yourself. You do not know what's happening. Therefore, you can't use the doubt and certainty argument. Having said that, obviously, as we've seen, there are some companions that were not happy with this concept at all. They said that if we're going to believe that it's about something happening, well, then if I can make sure that something didn't happen, then that certainty then maintains my wudu. Hence the argument that a person goes to sleep, wakes up, and says, did anything happen? Did you hear anything? Spend anything? Then, you know, no, then I've still got my wudu. Now, again, I repeat that when you see an individual companion do something like that, that's a very risky position. And I want you to guys, and all of you now, are, 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 you know, you're on the way to becoming proper students. And so therefore, you need to understand some of the key principles. A single companion stating something, or five or ten, is not something which gives an issue strength. When we want to... Uh, because a companion making a statement is not a million miles off from another scholar making a statement. All right? And we know that, I mean, it's, it's obviously different. You can't compare a companion with a tabi'i or a faqih or something like that. But a singular statement in the absence of delil must remain a singular statement in absence of delil, in the absence of evidence. And we must always, and, and if you don't have this principle, you'll drive yourself insane in fiqh. Because you will find a contradiction in every single position that exists in law. Whatever you see a position of the majority, you will find the opposite existing. In virtually every aspect of law. So if you had this idea that every time a companion says something, oh my God, we have to follow it, it's, it's impossible. There has to be a system of going with the evidence. There has to be a system where confidently say with respect, 
we accept this is the opinion or the action or the position of a certain companion or three, but the majority beg to differ. The evidence suggests something else, and there's no disrespect to that companion, but this is our understanding. He might have made a mistake. This is all here. This is his ishtihad or X, Y, Z, blah, blah, blah. And that is very important. That is very important. And so I want to say that however kind of interesting and funny and great this opinion this sounds, you know, like I can wake up and say, listen, did you hear anything? Did you smell anything? So, you know, job done then. It's fine. My wudu is solid. That's a very rare position to hold and a very strange and a difficult position to hold. But it's good for us as students to understand the concept again. Yeah. So those are the three key evidences that the scholars used to establish uh, the obligation of making wudu if you touch the private parts. And that's the humble position. The second position is that touching the private parts does not break the wudu at all. Okay. And they base their, their position on number one, the hadith of Talq ibn Ali, the hadith of Talq ibn Ali, anhu, that he asked the Prophet وسلم, about, about a man who touched his penis in the prayer. Alihi wudu is wudu alihi is wudu upon him. Upon him is wudu obligatory upon him. Ya Rasulullah, there's a man, he touches his penis in the prayer. Is wudu upon him? And Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, La innama huwa bad'athun mink. No, this is just another part of your body. This is just a, this is a part of your body. Okay, actually not another. Okay, this is, it's only a part of your body. It's only a part of your body. This hadith is a very famous one, of course. And let me give you a little bit of details about this hadith. This hadith has been narrated by Imam Ahmed as well in the Book of Purification and by Imam Abu Dawood and by Imam An-Nasai. Again, all of this in the Books of Purification and Imam At-Tirmidhi um, and Ibn Majah and so on. This hadith was considered weak by the following scholars, <coughs> by Imam Shafi'i, by Abu Hatim, uh, by Abu Zur'a, these are major scholars of naqd. Okay, when we say naqd, I mean, we did this before, naqd. Yeah, we're talking the very highest quality of weakening a hadith. They're the ones who, who have the absolute authority at saying this hadith is weak. Yeah. Um, Abu Zur'a, uh, Ad-Darakutni, Al-Bayhaqi, Imam, and Nawawi as well. Why? This is because of the son of this narrator. Okay, Qais ibn Talq. Okay, Qais ibn Talq, most of the scholars considered him to be weak. Therefore, he weakens the entire chain. However, Imam ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, alayhi rahmatullah, he considered, وَقَدْ رَجَّحَ الْحَافِظِ Meaning, he considered the evidences and he concluded, actually, this man is trustworthy. He's saduq. He is trustworthy. He is, yani, not trustworthy, truthful. Truthful. Trustworthy is higher. Is truthful, inshallah, meaning that he got he gets it right. Okay, it's, a, it's, a, it's not at the very highest level, second level, yeah, second level in terms of quality. In terms of the scholars that authenticated this hadith, not many, but from them, but from them, uh, Al Fallas, Al Fallas, Imam Al Tabarani, Imam Al Tahawi, and Ibn Hazm. Ibn Hazm also considered this hadith to be authentic. Big statement here, the big statement here is a statement by Ali ibn al-Madini. Ali ibn al-Madini, who is? Who is? 
who is Ali ibn al-Madini? Ibn al-Madini, who is he? He is the teacher of Imam al-Bukhari. So, and he is the, from A'imut al-Naq. Yani he is the companion of Imam Ahmed, Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal. He is the Imam of Naqd. Yani his position on a scholar, his position on a narrator, his conclusion on a narrator is very, very powerful. He said, he said, that he, this Qais ibn Talq, and this hadith is better with us than the hadith of Busra. So he's obviously comparing it. He's saying yani, what he narrates and what he says and his relative relative strength as a narrator and therefore the entire package, we consider it better, stronger than the hadith that they, talking about the previous position, use the hadith of Busra and the strength of the hadith of Busra. Okay? And Imam Al-Tahawi said that this chain is mustaqim or mutab. This chain is very strong, very clear. There's no doubt, there's no uh, weakness in it. And there's a number of references that you can study this hadith. As you can imagine, the hadith in this chapter have been studied intensely. Okay, There are a number of pages and pages and pages of discussion upon this hadith because ultimately it is the hadith that is more authentic that's going to establish the tone of the ruling. Are you going to have to make wudu or not when you touch your private parts? It's a significant point. It's a significant point because it's not such a rare action. It's something which is done regularly all the time. And therefore, this is the, this is the idea behind why there's so much discussion. And there isn't like a knockout Bukhari hadith or a knockout Muslim hadith. Yeah, it's very, very clear that solves the issue. So it's interesting that we have the teacher and the student on opposing sides. The student, Imam al-Bukhari, who is the Imam of all the, the people, even though he's a student, he says that the hadith of Busra is stronger in this matter and his teacher and a number of other scholars they considered no the hadith of Talq is actually better meaning that this is only just something from you okay now you can see here that there's no discussion of desire not desire they basically just said oh if a person touches his penis in the prayer well you know what it's just like touching your knee it's just like touching your elbow it's like touching your head it's just another part of your body therefore it's not obligatory is that clear everybody okay the next, the second evidence, and we've, we've seen this kind of evidence before, is that they use, for, for, for position number two, is that the basic principle is what? What's the asal here? Let's talk like fuqaha. What's the asal? No. What's the asal of this person? He's in wudu, and therefore the continuation of wudu. Okay? He's in wudu. And therefore, the wudu remains. The tahara, it remains without breaking. And we will not break a consistent, established state unless we have a definite, clear, certain evidence. So once we enter into this state, this state of certainty continues until a mutayaqan, yani absolute, certain, clear, no doubt, dalil, breaks this, this state. And what does Shaykh Uthameen say? He says the hadith of Busra and Abu Huraira are both weak. Abu, uh, Sheikh Uthameen has put his, yani, you know, he's put his cards on the table. Forgive the phrase. He has you know, made it very clear, this is my position. Both of these hadith are weak that the Hanbali Madhab uses. Uh, so if there is some kind of discussion, some kind of doubt about it, some doubt about it, yani two evidences which are not yani, authentic, then the certain state continues. What's the certain state? The remainder of the position of Tahara. That's what continues and we're not going to change that for a weak hadith. 
And I tell you what he says, which is very interesting. He goes, especially when it comes to wudu, as the Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam He should not leave the prayer until, to referring to the hadith of the one who passes wind, صح? or feels that he might have passed wind in the prayer. What did the Prophet say? He should not leave the line until he hears something or he smells something. Yes? So meaning that it doesn't matter what you think, we need certainty. You, and that certainty is a clear smell or a clear sound. Until then, it doesn't matter what you think about, I, I broke my wudu, I think I broke my wudu. Your tahara continues. So he's using the meaning, the impulse of this hadith. Okay? Uh, all right then. The third position. The third position is if someone touches their private parts with desire, then the wudu is broken. Then a person has to make wudu. If the person touches their uh, private parts without wudu, uh, without desire, sorry, then it is not broken. Okay, this is a this is the third position, and it's a position held by a number of scholars, especially contemporary scholars, and it's the one which, as you're going to see, as Sheikh Tamim, he says, this position, the, the 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 attractiveness of this position is that what does it do? It combines the two positions. No need to go around saying the hadith is weak and your hadith is weak or whatever. It combines both positions. It combines both hadith. And by this way, by understanding it in this way, we are able to say that both hadith, hadith busra and hadith talq are both acceptable. Okay? And Sheikh says, uh, Sheikh Uthameen makes a very important statement. And listen to this statement and make sure you write it down. This is a primary rule in Usul al-Fiqh that we do not... If, 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 if reconciliation, that's the word, jama' means to combine, yeah? If you can reconcile two hadith, if you can reconcile two hadith, let me translate it properly. Yes, it is obligatory to do so before you start preferring one over the other or abrogating one. <coughs> what we're we saying? We're saying you've got two hadith. Once you start to say this hadith is weak, you're making a call. You're making a call. And it's a risky call because you're going to have to make a judgment call based upon you know, your interpretation of, of narrators and so on and so forth. And what you might do, theoretically, is to take out an authentic narration, which should be part of the religion, which should be something which should be considered, and you're saying it's weak. And the Prophet might have said that. So when you mean tarjih, preponderating, that's the, that's the definition of tarjih, meaning you're making one opinion stronger than the other. You're doing that by building in your mind a case. And the way that that's done is that you strengthen your case and you weaken the other person's. صح? That's the only way you can build a case. Strengthen yours, weaken the others. Which is what we have to do a lot of the time. But that's only because you're forced to. But just to weaken the opinion of someone else, just willy-nilly, especially if they have an ayah, or interpretation of it, or a hadith, and they're ruling on it, is no joke. So you've got to be absolutely certain about what you have to do. So that's a risky position. It's not a risky position. It's not an ideal thing to do. The other thing, which is definitely not an ideal thing to do, when you're confused, is to jump to abrogation. It's an easy and lazy method, right? Oh, your hadith happened early. My hadith happened later. My one cancels your one out. So yours was the beginning part of the, of the sunnah, and mine was the later part of the sunnah. And therefore, what happens is that uh, that was an earlier ruling, and mine is a later ruling, and therefore it 
cancels out. It abrogates. Yes, this is lazy. I don't say it's lazy. Sometimes it has to happen. Yeah, if there is no other option, then it has to happen. And that's to, that's the point. Tarjih and the nasq, making one opinion stronger over another, or saying something is abrogated or not. This is something that should only happen if you have no other choice. What is the number one tool of Ahl Sunnah? And this is the point of Ahl Sunnah. Ahl Sunnah always try to reconcile. Always, when you see two contradictory hadith, two contradictory positions, your absolute effort must be expended. Your absolute priority is to try and reconcile. Always try to reconcile. Always try to reconcile. Once reconciliation becomes impossible, then we start moving to weakening a position or saying something is abrogated, etc., etc. Okay? لِأَنَّ الْجَمْعَ فِيهِ إِعْمَالَ الدَّلِيلَيْنِ وَتَرْجِيعَ أَحَدُهُمَا إِلَغَاءَ لِلْآخَرِ In fact, Sheikh just combines it, just explains it in one sentence. He says, because when you reconcile, then you're using two evidences, whereas when you do tarjih, then you are cutting yourself off from one of the evidences. Which is Sunnah of Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, potentially. Yeah? Yes. What you what, what you're, you're saying? What is the what's the what's my opinion on that position? That Sheikh Uthaymeen himself did not like al jamaa Not no one wants to create a position. The brother asked an important question. He said that um, actually, how did you word your statement? Is it true or did you say didn't Sheikh Uthaymeen? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, not just Sheikh Uthaymeen. No scholar just wants to do jamaa Okay. Um, just for the, you know to re- yeah, just to put yeah, so if I'm going to say the question, then it would be, um, what about you know the fact that Sheikh Uthameen doesn't like to do jama' because if you do jama' you've got a position and a position and you create a third position and we're creating a position without a, a salaf. Okay, what did I say before? Actually, if you, uh, let's 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 do, let, let, let's look at this issue. First of all, when uh, Sheikh Uthameen, like every other proper scholar will never want to create a fatwa out of a fiqh situation. What do I mean here? Fiqh is established rules and laws which are very, very uh, clear to see from the evidences, basic, you know, bread and butter of Islam. Simple evidences, simple positions. Okay? Touching the private parts, there's a hadith bang. It's not like, for example, what is the ruling on touching the genital organs that have not been formed on a cloned baby? Right? That's some kind of babas right there, yeah? I mean, you know, and that's going to come sometime, isn't it? Is the clone baby real? Is it a human being? Or is it a doll? Or I'm just speaking out loud. I mean, is it, does it take the ruling of a human or not? If it's not formed, but we know where it is, for example, let's say that we create soon, okay, using cloning, um, a hu- an organism, human organism, where because of the way that we do the transplantation of stem cells, I'm, I'm more in science fiction here than, than science fact, but just for the sake of it. And that is genital organs where it is form afterwards. Okay? Touching this area here now, does it break the law before they formed? Yes or no? And that is not fiqh. It's fatwa. You have to give a new ruling on a new position which has not been considered before, not been seen before. Or we try our best to try and obviously we try our best to find a qiyas or an analogy to something before, and then we deal with it. So, so that's a that that's always going to have to create a new statement, specific ruling, a fatwa, a position. 
And even that, no scholar will want to do that if he can't find a precedent. He will look through the books, he will look through the history to see if someone gave some kind of statement, some kind of salaf. That's the adab of ifta. That's the adab of the mufti. That if he's going to give a ruling, don't create a new situation. Go and find a precedent for yourself. Find a scholar that's already dealt with something like it or similar to it or exactly like it. And at least if you've got something there from a scholar, then you feel confident in going ahead yourself as well with your own personal opinion. So every scholar, in even not just fatwa, even in fiqh, would always want to see a, 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 a salaf, a precedent for it. And al-jama' to reconcile is not something that someone does unless they're forced to. Right? And so when Sheikh Uthameen says, I'm going to do jama', he doesn't, by the way. He, he, you'll see his opinion soon. Okay? When, um, if someone was to say that we do jama', he would accept it because people before have done it. Scholars before have done it. Fuqaha before have done it. But if they haven't done it, and there is no other option, then so be it. It's not haram to do, take a new position. There's, no, there's nothing in Islam that says, and this is important, that all of the correct positions have been stated already by the fuqaha. No. The aqidah has already been established in Islam. The fiqh hasn't. The fiqh is always open for interpretation based upon evidences. Always. And so it's not possible to say that it's not possible to have a new position. It's very unlikely that you're going to choose a position on something old and everyone else that have stated something is completely wrong. Very unlikely. But if it's going to happen, it's going to happen in fiqh, which is the most flexible and the most, yani, I don't know, the most flexible and the most adaptable. adaptable. Yes, the adaptable in, in terms of, in order to create that kind of situation. So I know I went a long way around. What, what I want to say is that no scholar wants to produce um, an opinion from new. And they will always look for a precedent. Okay? And most of the time, in fact, 99% of the time, when they choose a position like Jama'ah in, in this scenario here, it's because many, many scholars have mentioned it before. So it's not a new opinion at all. It's not a new opinion at all. And technically, I want to say something as well. Just because two hadith contradict each other, to say that we use both hadith is not, te is not technically a new opinion. Maybe that is the opinion. Maybe that is the correct opinion, that we have a different numbers of differing types of hadith, and the correct position is, boom. But we call it the third statement because some scholars did take only one hadith, and other scholars did only take one hadith, but actually the original correct position was always going to be combining both hadith. So that's the only from a fiqh point of view. So, so, he said, um, if we try to understand then why is this, why is this a good position, Sheikh Rasimim says, he says, if you see the statement, this is just another part of you, okay, then he goes, did this make sense now? If you were to touch your knee, if you were to touch your penis, for example, without any desire, then it's just like you touching any other part of your body. And therefore, it doesn't break your wudu. But if you do touch it with desire, then you do break your wudu. And then therefore, the illa is desire. The sharia reason which, which, which activates the breaking of wudu is the desire. The illa is mujuda. Okay? Um... He goes, it's very simple. It's not about looking for any evidence of, of what happens after you've touched it. It's not about waiting for ejaculation or not. Maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't. Maybe you realize, maybe it doesn't. It's very simple. If you follow this opinion, it's straightforward. If there's desire and then you touch, 
then you break your wudu. If there's no desire and you touch, such as washing, scratching, itching, whatever it is, then it does not break wudu. There's a very clear intention, clear emotional feeling behind it. Okay. Um, okay. And therefore, if you take this position, then the hadith, some of this, he said, some of the, the said, some of the scholars said that the hadith of Busra, the hadith of Busra, that whoever touches his penis and lets him make let him make wudu this is for istihbab only this is only recommended if someone breaks his if someone touches his penis make, let him make wudu not he must make wudu and that's the understanding that's what some scholars said it, it means okay um, and he goes, and also, if you take this position, then the other hadith of Talq make, makes sense. A'alayhi wudu, ya Rasulullah, if someone touches his penis in the prayer, A'alayhi wudu, la. Is wudu obligatory upon him? No. Meaning this hadith has only basically negated the obligatory uh, nature of having to make wudu. So therefore, the recommended nature still remains. So that fits with the other hadith. That's what Shaykh Rasulullah says. The first hadith, فَلْيَتَوَضَّى means recommended. La, it is not obligatory upon him to make wudu. In the second hadith, therefore, it's only recommended. Like in brackets. No, not obligatory. It's only recommended. It is just a piece, part of, this is all in brackets, assumed. It's just another part of your body. So when you take this position, then it starts to make sense in, in this kind of way. The fourth position and final position on this issue is the position held by Sheikh, uh, Sheikh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah. He said, he said that wudu for the one who touches their private parts, male or female, is recommended at all times, whether there is desire or no desire. It's recommended at all times, whether there is desire or no desire. It's a complete yani position all the time. Sheikh says, if we said that it is mustahab, then this means that it is something which is legislated and there is reward for it. Okay, that's what Sheikh is saying. Sheikh is saying that if you are saying that it is mustahab, then this means that this is definite action, making wudu should be done. It is a legislated action and you will be rewarded every time you do, you do it. And, and, and it is obviously a safe position as well. It's a safe position. It is the one of ihtiyat. Yeah, and it's the one which covers all the bases. Yeah, and whatever happens, just make wudu is good. But the key position here of Sheikh Islam is that he says it doesn't matter whether there's desire or not. And he also said it's not obligatory or not. It doesn't matter. It is at all times it is good to make, it is mustahab. If a person didn't make wudu, his wudu is still valid. His wudu is still valid. Now, Sheikh Uthameen just wants to deal with an issue. And this is part of our study from a solar fiqh point of view, and I think we should mention it, okay? Shaykh Uthameen said that there are some people that in this discussion, and he's talking about the Hanbalis here, okay? He's saying that some of the people, in the, in the, in the, some of the Hanbalis, they made a mistake in trying to support their position. In trying to support their position, they claimed that the hadith of Talq, this is the hadith of when, the prophet, when uh, again, when I say hadith of Talq, what do I mean? The hadith of Talaq is that when he said, a man, a, a man, he touched his private parts in the prayer, does he have to make wudu? The Prophet said, no, this is just another part of your body. Okay? This hadith, this is the hadith of Talaq. 
Some of the Hanbalis said this hadith of Talq is abrogated. This, will, this used to be the case at the beginning of Islam, that it was that you that, that it was a, it was it, there was no problem. Afterwards, afterwards, the ruling changed to what? You must make wudu if you touch your private parts. Sheikh Al-Tamin said this is a dangerous thing which we need to talk about. This is unacceptable for the following reasons, he said. He said, firstly, he said, First of all, he goes, why did they make this claim? He goes, they made this claim because, because, the Prophet ﷺ, because this talaq, he came to the Prophet ﷺ asking him this question at a very specific time. When was that time? It was when the Prophet ﷺ was building the first masjid. The first masjid to be built, okay, after the hijrah, the Prophet ﷺ was building it. Therefore, this is very, very early. Very, very early. Meaning, there's a huge amount of time, years, 13, okay, for there, for there to be uh, some kind of change. So that's the reason why they open a discussion. He goes, this is not correct for the following reasons. Number one, it is you do not go to abrogation unless reconciliation is impossible. We already mentioned this. You do not go to, you don't move to abrogation as a tool unless reconciliation is impossible. Is reconciliation possible here or not? Yes, it is. Number two. This is nice. He goes, if you study the hadith of Talq, there's an illa in the hadith. An illa which cannot be abrogated. Who can answer that? Who can explain that point? To save me reading it out. Shaykh Uthameen says they're trying to make this hadith of Talq abrogated. He goes, there's an illa in the hadith which can't be abrogated. Yes. Why? There's an illa in this hadith that's mentioned. What's an illa? The sharia reason for something. Yeah? There is something which is mentioned in this hadith which cannot be abrogated as a reason. Yeah. No. No. Which uh, explain? Yes. Excellent. Well done. Okay. The Prophet said it's another part of your body. So, in 20 years later, did it not become a part of your body? It still remains a part of your body. It's not possible to say we've, we've abrogated the hadith. If you're going to abrogate the hadith, then you've got to say why is it abrogated? Yes. Well, actually, the Prophet didn't just say no. Or yes, he said no, it's another part of your body. Alright then. So if you're going to say it's abrogated, then you have to say it's abrogated, it's not part of your body. Do you understand what I mean? The hadith says clearly, the Prophet ﷺ said, no, it's just another part of your body. They said it's abrogated. Okay, why is it abrogated? Well, it's abrogated because it's another hadith. So therefore, you, so what are you trying to say? You're trying to say that therefore, if the hadith is abrogated and the illa has to be abrogated, the reason that he gave, that has to be abrogated. What was the reason that he gave? He said, وسلم, it's another part of your body. Okay, let's look. Is it still a part of your body? Yes, it is. Therefore, it's not possible to say the hadith is, it's another part of your body. And this is a very good statement and proper fiqh that is. That's proper 
proper fiqh. Okay? Oh, number three. Number three. Um, it is not possible. You can't say... There's no rule in Islam and it's not possible to say that if two companions narrate hadith and they contradict each other, that automatically the one that was narrated later abrogates the earlier one. That's not an acceptable principle in the Sharia. Okay? That's not an acceptable principle in the Sharia. There's no evidence for that position either. To say this is a rule. Okay? So therefore, what do we say? We say that, or we conclude, uh, that that's not. So those are the three reasons. Alright? You can't just say if some two companions narrate a hadith, one later and one earlier, that the later one automatically abrogates the earlier one. It's not possible. There's no evidence for it. What's Sheikh Uthaymeen's conclusion? Well, khalasi, he says the conclusion, in summary. That if someone touches their private parts, it is recommended for them to make wudu in an absolute sense. It is always recommended for them to make wudu. Okay? It doesn't matter whether that is with shahwa or no shahwa. Meaning, all the time, it is recommended to make wudu. If he touches it due to a if he touches it because of shahwa if he touches it because of shahwa Sheikh Uthameen is speaking now then the then the position that he has to meaning is obligatory to make wudu is very strong you can see his position is very is there Sheikh Uthameen belongs in camp 3 I can tell you now okay his heart is there but this is what he says listen carefully he says وَإِذَا مَسَّهُ لِشَهْوَةٍ فَالْقَوْلُ بِالْوُجُوبِ قَوِيٌّ جِدًّا لَكِنِّي لَا أَجْزِمُ بِهِ وَلَحْتِيَاتُ أَنْ يَتَبَضَّعُ Literally translated, if he touches his private parts due to desire, then the statement that it is obligatory to make wudu is very strong, but I do not enforce it. I do not insist upon it. And it is better to make wudu. But it is better to make wudu. Is that clear, everybody? He's basically saying, he's basically put, he, he, he's accepting position four. He himself is never going to practice it. I'll tell you right now. He's going to practice number three. Yeah, and that's where his belief is. He knows that the position that if a person touches with, with desire, then it's a very, very difficult argument to say that he mustn't, he, that he shouldn't uh, make wudu. He must really make wudu. But I'm not going to go all the way. I'm not going to say he must and he doesn't have wudu and it's haram or whatever. No, I'm not going to go because the evidence is, suggests that there is some evidence for just uh, permissibility, uh, uh, for recommendation, not absolute obligation. Does that make sense, everybody? Yeah? Does that statement confuse anyone? Yeah? So he's basically saying, look, a person should make this wudu all the time. It's mustahab. But if he does touch it with desire, then really he's got to do it. But I'm not going to insist upon it. I'm not going uh, to say it's a must. But to be honest, it's better to do it. And that's a class position. That's a class position. Although I will go as far, I'll go further and say that my own personal, personal position, personal, pers personal position is a much more solid three than a half, half, four. But the class position is four. But the class position is four. My own personal position is a number three. Any person that does that, then they should make wudu. Um, and yeah, so that's, yani, that's that. 
Okay. Um, the the rest of these positions, okay. Um, I just want to just explain those. I think we can just do it in one minute because I don't I don't, I don't want to read any of the of the rest of it because it's just going back and forth, back and forth. It's very simple. What else breaks over ball? This is all this is all talking about four A. We've just done four A. Okay? Everything that we discussed so far is talking about four A. Now, and establishing the principle, of course, for the for B and C. So let's look at look at it now. Touching both in the case of a hermaphrodite and because of sexual desire, a male touching the penis. Get out of this thingy, honest to God, you've got to fix this box, Chaz. I don't have any notes, Chance. I don't have a printer, I don't have no notes, I have nothing, I'll send it to you. Gasamullahi packs, yeah? When we do it on my phone, yeah? There you go. Yeah? When we get on my phone. You're stepping to my phone, that's the problem. This phone, yeah, need, yeah did you see the dance that I gave on this phone? That's her phone. Say, mashallah. Don't put Nazar on my phone. I'm going to hide it from us. Alright. Touching both. In the case of a hermaphrodite, okay, meaning the uh, the the labia and the penis. Yes, I can't see anything, Shaz. Man, I don't know what you do. Yeah, why? Why didn't you just get rid of that box before? Right, and C, because of sexual desire, a male touching the penis of a hermaphrodite, or a female touching the labia of a hermaphrodite. And there's nothing else I'm going to explain about that. I have zero motivation to talk about this at all. I'm so hermaphrodited out. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, 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 honest to God, my head is just spinning from hermaphrodites. And there's too much else going on. I just don't want any space to be dedicated to hermaphrodites anymore. So if there's someone who wants to ask for clarification, let you ask. Okay. Ask or forever hold your silence. All right. It's simple. And the class position is the Hanbali Madhab. Surprise, surprise. We are down the barrel on this. Okay? If a person touches both, alright, in the case of a hermaphrodite, hermaphrodite touching his own, okay? Alright? Then it is uh, a thingy. You need to make wudu. Uh, 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 sorry, when I say the class position, remember the Hanbalis are obligating this. Don't forget that, yes? Whereas we say what? What's the class position? Recommended. And with desire, you should really be kind of moving towards that, doing it definitely. Okay? So, uh, uh, and then the, the, the Hanbalis, they kind of join us in the third part. They kind of like uh, uh, loosen up a little bit on the third part because it's another person. And so therefore, now we have a person, a male, normal male, for the most... Yeah, the craziest reason in human history possible, meaning it can't be explained by any sense or whatever, he decides to touch the private parts of a hermaphrodite. Okay? Now, I'm hoping that they had assumed that he was a surgeon and he was about to chop one off, yeah? Okay? I don't know. It could be. Maybe this is for doctors, yeah? The point is, is that if a doctor, because I'm not going to entertain for a second in my mind, that someone else would have another reason to do so, okay? But if a doctor was going... Huh? I think there's some confusion on mine in the fact that people are to think, uh, you know, 
this is a barrier in place, it's actually Okay, good, good. We need to answer. You know what? We'll take you to the questions now. Okay, but let me do, let's just finish off. Let's, let's just finish this off here, because of sexual desire, a male touching the hermaphrodite, yani private parts, or the female touching the the, 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 the other parts, okay, or of the hermaphrodite, the labia, then they will, with desire, break wudu. With desire, break wudu. Okay, yani according to our position, I mean that they should therefore then make wudu. And it's not obligatory, but yani, definitely if there's desire, then you know my personal position and generally the class position is that it's a very strong position to make the wudu, but it's recommended only. Recommended only. Is that clear, everybody? That. Okay. Let's now talk about now, the details. Let's now talk about wearing gloves. If there is a glove, if there is a barrier, then this is not considered touching. Therefore, it is not a breaking of wudu. Is that clear? If you are touching, this is talking about skin. Mess must be the hand without a barrier. We've stated that last week. If there's anyone confused on that issue, I stated that last week. That what we're talking about, when we talk about any touching, then we are, in fact it's there, look, it's there in the text. Everything that applies to 4, 5, 6, next week we'll do the number 5 and 6. But everything that applies to 4, 5, 6 is the caveats at the bottom. All of this is not the case. If one touches hair or fingernails, or a pubescent boy, or uses a barrier, or if one's, or if one, that last part is a bit confusing, I'll explain that, or if one's body is touched with sexual desire. I'll, talk, I'll explain that in the next week. But the point is, if you use a barrier, then it's not applicable. If you were, for example, to touch uh, the private parts, the hair only of the private parts, it would not break wudu. Okay, I will explain that as well. If you were to touch the private parts using your fingernail, then that would not be considered the hand. That doesn't break wudu either. So if you've got a gloves on, or there's a cloth or something, that doesn't also break wudu, but that's not mess. That's not touching. Okay? So that's, that's a caveat which is already there. So a person who scratches himself, but then he should do that. But in salah, as someone asked, then that does not break wudu. Okay. You might think, why on earth yani, is the hadith there in the first place about the person who touches? Because, as I said before, and I'll say it again, we have layers of clothes. Whereas they have no layers of clothes. They have like one cloth for the whole body. It's a huge possibility of you touching parts of your body if there's an itch. Yeah, it's just a thin cloth is covering them. Okay, that's it. So next week we'll do number five and six. Uh, inshallah, let's do some questions inshallah from the class here and then online. Anyone here? Start, Bob's going to start, start. Question <coughs> in regard to the Hanbali position about using the ilah of sleep. Yes. Uh, similar to what Musab was saying earlier. In terms of when you're touching your penis, uh, you, it's quite clear, most likely, if you can see some kind of, uh, you know, some kind of product on your but, but 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 who knows whether it's going to come out then, come out later, not, whatever. The, the, the idea according or um, the idea there as an evidence is that w one does not normally touch one's private parts. And if they do, then they are bringing on a situation which what the private parts are used for. That's the idea. That's the idea. And as you can see, it's not their primary evidence. Uh, uh, you know, they, 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 they leave it to their last kind of evidences, the logical kind of deductioning. Always you're going to be able to argue against such a point. It's weak, isn't it? It's just a theoretical argument. 
That's why they put the hadith first. Uh, they always leave that And that's system of fiqh, of course. You're going to prove a point, go with the deal. Yeah. And when you go to logic, then you give the right 100% to the other guy to destroy your argument. It just, it, then it just comes down to who's, who's cleverer, basically. Who's more eloquent, who's got better rhetoric. Yeah. Uh, those in position two, i.e. pitching does not break the wudu, what is their position when the prior part has pitched with desire? Do they still hold the opinion that wudu is not needed? Uh, whether there's remission or not. Correct, correct. The position of number two is that they consider, yani inexplicably so, that even if there is desire involved, it doesn't break the wudu. It's a minority position, that very minority. Question about <coughs> if you're in salah and you accidentally pitch your prior part, does that wudu remain? If your person is, is in prayer and he or she touches their actual private part, skin to skin contact, then that wudu is not broken according to the class position. That wudu is not broken according to the class position. That is the literal application of the hadith of talq. That it is just another part of your body. If there was no desire, of course. Alright? What is Ibn Taymiyyah saying? It is recommended to make wudu in all circumstances, but it's not obligatory. So, yani, either way. Either way. Either way we are covered. Three and four are covering that position. Hanbalis, of course, will make it upon you. Because if it was you touched it, khalas. Yeah. Just a, a, a question that only a man would accidentally pitch their penis without desire. What about if a woman accidentally pitches the vagina without desire? Same. This is the same for the male or the female. That's exactly what the statement says. Touching a connected penis or labia. All right. Referring to man, man, woman, woman. Yeah. Maybe coming to this next week, what about the ruling on touching a baby's private part when you're cleaning it? So, so, uh, that is coming next week, but I want to say to you that the Hanabila, the Hanbalis, they are very strict on this issue, and they consider the hadith, they, they, they consider, the, in the Hanbali school, um, it's a disaster, basically. You have to wear gloves to change nappies, um, or make wudu each time. They apply the ruling... They said there's no evidence to suggest any difference. Sheikh Muhammad Mukhtar Shankitu, who holds that opinion, he says, he says, He goes that the evidence is very general. It does not specify young or old. Therefore, if a woman touches the private parts of her child in cleaning, then she has to make wudu. She has to make wudu. That's the humbly position. That's the position of all those people who considered that desire has nothing to do with it. Ours, of course, is a much easier, much simpler. Our position covers more evidences and, 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 and combines them. You know, that if it's practical purposes or reasons or whatever, whatnot, then there's no desire, then it doesn't break wudu. So the class position, they just want to make it very, very clear. Any mother who is cleaning nappies and touching the private parts of their children does not break the wudu. That is my position. And that's the class position as well. Question on, uh, I'm doing hospital, inshallah, for surgery, and I will need a cataract bag for a day or so. Can tayammum be made? For a catheter being, uh, 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 sh uh, the, the person will be having a catheter inserted for a day. Do they need to make tayammum, or is tayammum acceptable? Yeah, need, or, uh, they, or what, they're, what, they're, what they're referring to is uh, istinja, they're basically saying. So if they are able to make istinja in terms of moving, then uh, they have to absolutely still make istinja, okay? 
But if a person is unable to move from bed, then it's permissible to make tayammum in the place of istinja. Wudu still needs to be done. If they're not able to make wudu, then they will make tayammum for the wudu part as well. But we'll come to that later, of course. That's something different. Done? Yeah. Anyone here? Everybody? Excellent. Jazakumullah khair. I will see you guys. Uh, if there's, uh, I've been uh, uh, told that there are only, well, it closed. Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. I just want to let show everyone oh, online. Honest to God, online are not yani, looking after us. Online have ways, okay? Alright, online needs to pay their taxes. It's only the people in Sheet that are paying their taxes at the moment. Whereas the people uh, yani, online are just sitting there at home. Custom day eating. I've seen them, I've seen them. Wallah, I've seen them. They're just sitting there eating snacks and tea and chocolate. And they're like, you know, watching the football on the other screen. And they're just, just chilling. It's not from Chido. Oh no, it's from outside. Okay, khalas, online, 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 on, on, online has been saved yani, today. Okay, this is a London gift yani, from all the basic. Yani, I think, I think I clocked it now. Mashallah. So you've been, you've, uh, you've, uh, uh, yani, got respite for one week. You know, there's something when I was when I was doing this class in 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 Edmonton. There are people who sit there. During this class, it's like at lunchtime. So they're sitting there eating pregos, pregos. So good day, go, do you want some pregos? I said, what the heck's a prego? I never heard of my name in my entire life. You don't have a prego? Prego? I, I hope I've got the name right. I think it was prego. Did someone just say Pringles? I think I know what Pringles are, you pack. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> oh my God. I have a difference between Pringles and a prego. A prego... If I can remember, and maybe Annie Mesa and those folks from Edmonton can just put in, I think it was like some kind of, it was a Ukrainian dish. Like, where did they come from? Yeah. So it was Ukrainian, and it's like a pasta something, but inside it's got cheese. It's nice, mashallah. I'm just saying that people chill watching this online. Where the Annie and sitting here in cold, freezing, and hungry, and whatever, and just a couple of celebrations. So anyway. I have a question regarding two contradictory hadith yeah. so-called contradictory hadith yeah what, what's the, the the limit because obviously you said that some uh, hadith some scholars they consider them weak and some other consider them authentic what's the, what, what would be the, the limit the limit is the limit so you're asking about reconciliation when how who what it's a massive area but it's not possible to just jump to re just like brother here said you just don't jump to reconciliation as well as to create a third opinion or a new opinion, if, for example, it is clear as the sun, that one hadith is absolutely weak. Do you, know, do you know what I'm trying to say? It's when a hadith has been differed over, you're talking about a person, did he get confused later and might have made a mistake, maybe he didn't. Meaning it's not really clear, and the hadith strength is not, you know, mawdu'ah, it's not fabricated hadith, or very, very weak, yeah, and you need to make some kind of judgment call, then, then, yani, it's a, a jama'ah is, is an option. But if you see a hadith which is absolutely yani, weak, fabricated, and so on and so forth, you can't just say, oh, you know what, you know, let's all you know, be happy and plural and just make jama'ah anyway of the weak evidence. No, no. The hadith needs to be, you know, there's got to be some doubt over it. Um, but if it's absolute certain that the hadith is very, very uh, uh, weak. Or the alternative, that all of the evidences in one position are very, very strong, then of course you go for that position. You just don't go for all thingy. I'm having a nightmare here, by the way, okay? 
I'm just, I'm trying to keep my cool, yeah, and look you straight in the eye, yeah. But I'm obviously struggling here, by the way, yeah, which is not good because I definitely want to open this live so that people see, yeah, that I actually go home with nothing. I just want to say that every time that this happens, yeah, I go home with very little. Yes, and if I don't get my galaxies out at this moment here, yeah, then, huh? And a couple of Snickers. I always take a couple of Snickers out as well. What are we doing? Are we doing the old gravy, yeah? Yeah. yeah? Huh? No? No? There we go. Okay, there guys. There we go. Bismillah. There we go. I love the way that you guys are just jumping through your head. Five, right there, back there. There we go. Bismillah. Ladies, there we go. You ready? Bismillah. There we go. Alright then. And the rest can go out and pass around. Yeah, final question. Bismillah. Yes. Yes. Ah, bro. Are you kidding me, bro? <laughs> Just gonna ask about organ donation. Okay, no, no. That's a massive one, man. We have to leave that on. In summary, when you're alive, it's permissible to donate that which does not leave the body deep um, in a in a significantly de Thing rigid state. Can't. What's the word? No. You, you're not a weakened state, meaning a dependent organ. You can't give a dependent organ. You can't give your eyes. You can't give your only kidney. But you can give one. You can give one. If you can live on one lung, one kidney, one liver, whatever. One liver. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> see, that's what happens at this time, man. Alright? Then it's something which is permissible during that time. I personally hold the opinion that post-death shouldn't be done at all. The Fiqh councils of the um, uh, the IOSC, Majmur Fiqh al-Islami, meaning the international Fiqh councils, they have ruled on the permissibility of organ donation completely post-death to Muslims. They even make a caveat. Don't even open up that yeah, subject at all. Don't open up that subject. Because if you're going to do it, you're going to do it. Muslims are non-Muslims. If it's Muslims only. I do like it though. I like it. Okay, Zakmullah.